0: We are talking about a very controversial theme today as we wrap up this series, What Jesus Believed. This is 13 parts, so you can catch up with us on uh, Facebook, YouTube, or our website. You're watching with one of those uh, venues right now, and I'd invite you to get your fingers ready on your keyboards, on your devices, because I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and get you to participate today. Government seems to be a theme that everybody's got an opinion on. Uh, So we want to know what's Jesus's opinion and what did he believe about government? Maybe he has some things to say to us that we'll like, and maybe he has some things that we won't like, but I think it would be uh, fitting for us to close with this uh, today. Again, all 13 parts are online and you can watch them and listen to them. We've got them on audio platforms as well. First question for you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word government? You know those word association games, right? And we've got a little image on the screen there. Never discuss religion or politics. Never, people say. Just talk about things that don't affect you instead. (laughs) As if religion doesn't affect you, as if politics don't affect you. Of course they do. Uh, But we don't like talking about these things because they bring up so much emotion And so many different things come to our minds. So what do you think of when you hear that word government? Why don't you type your answer in and uh, share on Facebook or YouTube? We will try and publish those comments in the stream as we have time here. But I've got a big slideshow for you. I'm going to take you on a little history lesson, a little journey today uh, as we look at what Jesus believed about government. Um, You know, everybody wants God on their side. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody wants God on their side. The truckers want God on their side. The people who are against it want God on their side. And everybody's got an opinion. And the last two years, have elicited so much emotion, so much anger, so much division. Uh, there's, there's division in families. There's division in homes. There's division in marriages. There's division in churches. There's division in cities. I mean, it is ridiculous. Who would have ever thought that in March 2020, when this thing came out, that two years later, this is what it would be, and this is what people would be fighting about. Who would have thought this, right? Uh, But that's what's going on, and everybody's got an opinion, and everybody wants God on their side. But what did Jesus really believe about this subject? What are his views about it? How did he live with government? And the first thing that you have to realize when you ask this question uh, to the New Testament, is that we're dealing with apples and not apples. This is apples and oranges. So, again, people want to jump to God, and we got, we've got God on our side and whatever our position is. Uh, But a lot of times people have no clue what Jesus lived under under government and why Jesus believed the things that he did and why those things matter to us today. So the first thing you have to do is realize you are not dealing with the same kind of government today in Canada as you are in first century uh, Palestine (laughs) It's very, very different Hint, it wasn't like ours today, it was a very different kind of government. So I want to give you a bit of a history lesson, and when you grasp this, you're probably going to be like, wow, that really puts things in perspective. So I want you to stay with me and track with me here. There are several different layers of what Jesus had to deal with and the people of his day had to deal with. The first is Rome. And they had to deal uh, right at the top of the of the proverbial political chain of government was Rome. And uh, we're not talking about a democracy where, you know, the people got to vote on who the emperor was. No, what the people were supposed to do is... Worship the emperor. So you have imperial cult worship in Rome at that time. Uh, For many, many years, up to the time where we start seeing the emperors listed in the New Testament, they had something of a democracy, although you didn't have the common people voting in the emperors. You had something like it, you had shades of it. But by the time Augustus was the emperor, this changed, and you have this development of imperial cult worship, which took place over centuries, really. Uh, But this is not a democracy. This is an oligarchy. This is a totalitarian society. And at the top of the food chain are the Roman emperors. The first one that we run into is the one from the Christmas story, uh, Augustus, and he has a more fancy name, Augustus Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, and he reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD, and we see him drop in and out of the Gospels very, very quickly in the Christmas story in those days, Caesar Augustus. Augustus, bingo, bingo, there he is, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which sends Mary and Joseph over to Bethlehem eventually. And there he is, and he comes and he goes. And Augustus uh, was an interesting emperor. All of them were. Uh, Maybe one day we'll do a series and look at all of these characters, these political characters of the Gospels. Uh, They would worship Augustus as the son of God or Lord and God. He didn't necessarily demand it, some say, but that's the time. So right at the top was the emperor, and uh, uh, Judea, Galilee, really the, the whole known world, well beyond the areas that Jesus ministered in in the Gospels, was under the domination of Rome and the Jewish people didn't like it. The Jewish people wanted to be liberated from the oppression of Rome. They're paying these taxes. Rome is watching them very closely. Rome would tolerate their religion, uh, but they would watch them very, very closely, and uh, Caesar Augustus is the first one that is mentioned to us in the Gospels. Uh, The next one that we see, and this is a great verse, uh, is from Luke chapter 3, and we see uh, Emperor Tiberius there. Uh, He goes by the name technically, Tiberius Claudius Nero, and he reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. Got this great verse in Luke chapter 3, which really gives you all of the government in one or two verses here that you need to know about. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's, note that. Tiberius there, because they're all called Caesar, or some of them have Nero in them, the names are complicated, but there's Tiberius there. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, that's a different layer of government, we'll get into him in a moment, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, that's Herod Antipas, that's another layer of government, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, that's another layer of government. That's a religious government. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. Uh, So here you have Emperor Tiberius on your screen. Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Uh, he didn't necessarily demand worship as the emperor, but again, that is the whole system back then, and that's when he reigned. The next one who drops into the, the pages of the New Testament is Claudius, or he goes by the name Tiberius Claudius Drusus Nero Germanicus. <laughs> Say that a few times, okay? He reigned from 41 to uh, 54. You see him drop in in Acts chapter 11, and uh, he t- there's a mention of a famine that took place there, uh, that took place in the reign of Claudius. There he is. We also see him in Acts chapter 18, when Paul goes to the city of Corinth. He meets uh, a a Jew named Aquila from Pontus and his wife Priscilla, who are significant uh, leaders in the New Testament church, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, we know that this took place, I think it's AD 50 or AD 51 from the history book. So he drops in and out for us, uh, and that's Claudius. And then we see uh, one of the more vicious emperors uh, after Caligula. Caligula is not mentioned in the pages of the Gospels. A vicious, vicious and uh, kind of demented emperor, didn't last long, Caligula. But we see uh, Nero come onto the pages of Scripture, although he's not specifically named We know that it has to be him, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Drusus, Germanicus, from 54 to 68. And uh, uh, what happens with, um, with Nero is we see that Paul actually makes an appeal to appear before Nero when he is arrested in the latter chapters of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 25, when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision. This is the emperor Nero by the time. I ordered him, and the I there is uh, is Agrippa the first, I think it is. I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. That would be Nero, and it's it's an interesting passage because Nero persecuted the Christians in a vicious, vicious fashion. Uh, tradition has it that Peter and um, and Paul died at the hands of Nero in a great persecution that took place after he set fire to the city of Rome and blamed Christians for it. And it led to persecution and tradition says that Peter and Paul died in that persecution. And yet here you see Paul appealing to Caesar. What he really wants to do is preach the gospel in Rome and in Caesar's household. We don't know if he did, but that was his goal to eventually take the gospel to Rome. Uh, so these are the emperors, and uh, then you get to others such as Domitian, who he may have been the emperor when the book of Revelation was written. Again, another vicious one who would would basically kill the Christians who would not worship him. And so you had a, a persecution, got worse and worse and worse uh, as Christianity began to grow and as the church began to grow, and that's just the emperor's. Uh, Then you have these uh, procurators, and uh, the most famous one that we know of, um, yes, the most famous one that we know of is Pontius Pilate, okay? And um, so what would happen is that the Roman government would name um, uh, proconsuls or procurators slash prefects, and it depended on the different provinces there if the province was volatile, they would end up with a procurator. If the province was stable and there weren't uprisings there, they would end up with a proconsul. Well, Judea, where Jesus did much of his ministry, was a volatile province. And so the procurator who we see there is Pontius Pilate. On your screen, you actually see a a slab there of, I think it's marble, where we found his name scratched in there, Pontius Pilate and um, uh, Tiberius's name, the the emperor who he served under and that he was the prefect of Judea we've got his signet ring that we found he reigned from 26 to 36 and he was the procurator in place when Jesus was crucified and he has a very significant conversation with Jesus about government that we'll get into in just a few moments but he is the most famous I've actually stood in front of that slab it's very very impressive uh, at a couple of museums that I went to but he is the procurator there under the time of Jesus when Jesus is executed, uh, 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 the procurator of Judea. And uh, we see a couple of other ones there uh, in Acts chapter 25. Antonius Felix is there in Acts um, 20, uh, t- sorry 24, and in 25, we have Portius Festus. We see these two guys involved in the trial of Paul. Again, in that whole process where he ends up wanting to appeal to Emperor Nero, which you can read about in the book of Acts. Are you with me so far? So, this is, this is the beginning, really, of the government in that day. So, the, the emperors would station these procurators uh, under their direct report in these volatile provinces where there would be uprisings and rebellions. Judea was one of them. That's the, So, you've got the emperors, you've got the procurators, and then you've got to deal with the Herod dynasty and the Herodian kings. So, uh, the Herodian kings are descendants. Partially from Edom, and partial or uh, Edom in the uh, Old Testament, they're called Edumaeans as a result. Some of them anyway, and uh, they're also descended from Jews uh, who were called the Maccabees. And in about 165 BC, uh, there was a very famous. Uh, incident that took place where the Jews took back the temple from the the Greeks uh, the Seleucid ruler who was called Antiochus Epiphanes the who called himself God in the flesh and he profaned the temple uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar took over the temple did terrible things to the Jewish people and the Maccabees through guerrilla warfare took back the temple under a leader by the name of Judas Maccabeus in one 65 BC, and they lit the sacred flame in the candelabra, and it stayed miraculously lit. This is where we get the festival of Hanukkah, or the lights uh, that's celebrated today. We even see this mentioned in the pages of the Gospels. And so the Herodian kings were also descended from the Maccabees, but they weren't viewed as fully jewish because of their their edomite descent as well the most famous one that that appears in the gospels is herod the great and herod the great was a client king, so Rome uh, put him there, the Senate put him there, but he was a client king over all of the area, over all of uh, what we would call Palestine today, not just a province, but the whole thing, and uh, we know quite a bit about Herod the Great from the history books, and uh, we see him again in the Christmas story. He's the one who slaughtered the infants looking for Jesus, Matthew Chapter two, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the uh, uh, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Well, this would be very, very, very troublesome for Herod the Great, because he's the king of the Jews. Rome made him king of the Jews to govern the whole area under their Watchful eye. So it's a very, very strict, very complex setup there. Not only do you have Rome to deal with, not only do you have these procurators and proconsuls to deal with, but you've got this these Herods to deal with as well. And Herod the Great wants to get rid of Jesus, views him as a threat, and uh, tries to do that and slaughters all of the infants in Bethlehem looking for Jesus, can't find him. Jesus, right when he's born, imagine, as an infant, he is on the run from uh, Herod the Great who wants to kill him. Uh, and that's a story that is told and retold and retold in even in modern culture. Uh, I was watching the most recent episode of The Book of Boba Fett. I don't know if any of you are Star Wars fans, but uh, I kind of am. And in the most recent episode of The Book of Boba Fett... You see Grogu, that Yoda-like creature, and you see Grogu has a memory of his past as an infant and the stormtroopers are killing all of the Jedi around him looking for Grogu and Grogu has to escape. This is airlifted from the pages of Matthew's gospel, Jesus being hunted even as an infant. So Herod the Great, very famous. We know a lot about him. He was a paranoid leader. He had members of his own family killed uh, when he was suspicious of them. He had several of his wives killed. He was quite the individual and the narrative in the gospels matches him perfectly. And he is after Jesus right when Jesus is Uh, born. So he's the most famous one. And then you see some more uh, plop on the scene here. You have Herod Archelaus, who's mentioned very, very briefly in Matthew's gospel after Herod the great dies in verse 21, Matthew two. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is Joseph. But when he heard that Archelaus, there he is, was reigning in Judea in place, of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And what happened was that Herod the Great would uh, divide his kingdom up into different sections, and different provinces would be under the jurisdiction of different Herods who were descended from Herod the Great. One of them is Archelaus. Uh, We see another Herod in um, uh, the Gospels as well in several places, and it's Herod Antipas. And he is the Tetrarch of Galilee. So Tetrarch uh, from the uh, word four. So the kingdom was divided up into four different uh, leaders, four different places. And Antipas was over Galilee. He's a descendant from Herod the Great. He's the most known in the Gospels, has all kinds of dealings with John the Baptist because John the Baptist gets right into uh, Herod Antipas's personal life because Herod Antipas' took his half-brother Herod Philip's wife to be his own. Her name was Herodias, and he takes Herodias as his wife, and John the Baptist uh, gets right into this, this politician's life, uh, it, this governor, if you will, right into his life and says that what he's doing is wrong. And you see the story ensue in the Gospels of how uh, this is a bother, of course, uh, not only to Herod Antipas, but also to his wife. And the story is told of a party that took place and uh, of Salome, the daughter of Herodias, and how she danced so well. And Herod Antipas says, I'll give you anything you want. And she says, after conspiring with her mother, give me the head of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is famously executed. Uh, Why? Because he stands up to this party politician, and gets right into his business. Uh, So we know this from the Gospels. He murdered John the Baptist. We also see him interact with Jesus in the trial, many trials of Jesus that took place Thursday into Good Friday, and he does appear before Antipas because he's from Galilee, And so uh, he sort of passed off to Antipas as if Antipas wants to do anything with Jesus. And all Antipas seems to want is for Jesus to do some kind of magic trick in front of him. Uh, So he doesn't really last long uh, in terms of his conversation with Jesus. Jesus doesn't even give him the time of day uh, in the conversation, but he is definitely listed there. And then you see some more Herodian kings. You do see Philip uh, mentioned as a Tetrarch there in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. You see Herod Agrippa the first. Again, these names are complex, but just so you know, uh, he was the one who had James, the brother of of John Zebedee, uh, killed in a persecution that took place in Acts chapter 12. And then you see Herod Agrippa II, uh, in Acts 25 and 26, as Paul is trying to appeal to Rome. Um, That's not all. (laughs) So not only are you dealing with the emperors, not only are you dealing with their procurators and proconsuls and so on. Not only are you dealing with the Herodic dynasty and the Herodians who followed these, these kings, but you're also dealing with a religious government, a religious court, and that is the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin in the trial. Uh, the Sanhedrin was composed of both Sadducees and Pharisees, although people say it's more Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin and especially the Sadducees had control of the temple that you see on your screen. And the Sanhedrin was like a religious court. They had the power to jail people. They had the power to uh, punish people who, in their view, violated the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And this was a religious court with a lot of authority and a lot of power. They could interact with Rome when they wanted to, to push for an execution. The Jews did not have the, the uh uh, power or the liberty to perform the death penalty legally. And so they would go to the Romans to execute someone if they wanted to. This is what they did with Jesus. And uh, they used to meet in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones at the temple. There's an arrow pointing to where scholars think that it may have been. And this is all the the, the spaghetti, the ball of yarn, of government that Jesus lived under, that the people lived under, they detested it. They couldn't stand Rome. They couldn't stand uh, having to pay taxes. They had to deal with all of these things. These are people who couldn't vote. They had no rights. They were. It was quite a time. Uh, and again, Jesus, as soon as he's born, he's got Herod the Great after him. Augustus Caesar is not doing much with him. He's executed under Tiberius and under Pontius Pilate. So trouble, trouble, trouble for the most part. So I ask you again, as we're dealing with apples and oranges here, which government would you prefer to live in? Would you prefer to live in the one that we are in now, in the nation of Canada? Because every, every country, every government is, is different. And Quebec, even within the nation of Canada, has its own particular nuances and its own particular kind of style. But which government would you prefer to live in? What they had to deal with over there? What Jesus had to deal with over there in his lifetime or ours? And again, put your comments in, and we'll try and publish them as you uh, as you do so. And I always try to read those comments. So as long as you don't use profanity, you can publish, all right? Because I know when we're talking about this subject, it gets people pretty upset. So at the end of the day, what did Jesus believe then about government? Because we see just very briefly what he was living in, what the people were living in, What did he believe about it? Let me give you a few observations. Number one, Jesus believed in the sovereignty of God over human government. You are the only king forever, we sang today. Jesus seems to have believed that God was sovereign and in control over human established government. Even that government that God was sovereign over it. So you see when Jesus has this fascinating conversation with the procurator Pontius Pilate, now, it's an interesting conversation because what we know of Pontius Pilate from the ancient writings of the time is that he was in quite a pickle, quite a precarious spot when having to deal with the powder keg of Jesus of Nazareth. He had an immense, immense following, and Pontius Pilate was under Tiberius's radar because of a few things that went awry under his leadership. So there's a couple of notable incidents where uh the the Romans under Pilate they brought in their their. Um, they marched an army into Jerusalem with their Roman standards and the you know the 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 figures of Rome and the images. And this would have been very very offensive to the Jewish people. And yet Pontius Pilate did it anyway. The people were very upset, and there was a rebellion and a huge confrontation where the Jews were willing to face violence and death. Uh, rather than to, uh, to be exposed to these graven images kind of thing that were there because of Pontius Pilate's deed. And there was a, the story goes that there was a big confrontation. They were willing to fight to the death, and Pilate backed off. And he didn't use force, and he didn't use brutality to deal with them at the time. There's another story that Pilate used the money from the temple to build an aqueduct to transport water, to make their lives better, he, he used the temple money. And this was extremely irritating to the Jewish people. They were very, very offended by it. Uh, they contacted uh, uh, Herod Antipas, I think it was, and then uh, it, it got told to Tiberius. And the story goes that Tiberius sent a very direct letter to Pontius Pilate that he better watch out because if there's one more incident, it's going to be trouble for him. Apparently the letter has all kinds of vulgar language in it and Tiberius was quite upset with Pilate and now he's got to deal with Jesus of Nazareth, this powder keg at the Passover, thousands upon thousands of people converging into the city of Jerusalem for Passover and they've got this Jesus and they want to push him to a public execution. He's got a huge following and you see him squeezed into a corner if you read the gospel narratives you even see his wife comes to him in the whole conversation with jesus and his wife takes him aside and says i've had a a nightmare about this guy to have nothing to do with him back then they took those things very seriously the romans took dreams and nightmares and these things very seriously and he's being squeezed he has to watch out how he handles jesus And you see Jesus have this conversation with him in John chapter 18, John chapter 19. Uh, But it gets interesting when when Pilate is saying, I can let you go. Don't you realize I can. I have the power to leave you and to get you out of this situation. The Jewish leaders are calling for his execution. They're saying we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. We're going to you, governor, execute him. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid because, again, he's being squeezed, and he goes back inside of his palace. He's talking to Jesus. He says, where do you come from? And don't you do, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? And Jesus's answer, which would have if I were Pilate, I would be even more scared. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now, some could argue that the above is Tiberius, but Jesus uses this phrase in John's gospel before. In John 8, he says, I am from above. You are from below. And here he says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you. From above. Therefore, the one who handed you over to me is guilty of a greater sin. Uh the that would be perhaps Judas, that would be perhaps the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin. But he's saying, Pilate, you're here because God has put you here. For whatever reason, you're gonna come and you're gonna go. Your power, you don't even realize it. It's because it's temporarily there from above. It's given to you. It's on loan to you. I would have been so scared if I was Pilate at that point. And you see, he tries to let him go. He can't. And he ends up trying to wash his hands of the whole thing. And you see Jesus ultimately executed. Paul would pick up on this. And Paul would say in, in the book of Romans to submit to the authorities because they're God's agents. And Paul would say that writing to the church in Rome under these emperors who did vicious things, who would get worse and worse and worse. And yet Paul says that Uh, it's amazing. Peter says that he talks about submission to authorities. And you say, how could he write this when they lived under those circumstances? Well, because they believed and you see it here in Jesus's life that there is one who's sovereign even over them. And that's God himself. So Jesus seems to believe this number two. He believes that we in this time, including them in their time when he said it, live in two kingdoms. Not one, but two. And you see this in the incident of the, uh, the coins and the tax question. So, this is from Matthew chapter 22. Our guest uh, Don Mann mentioned this text last week as well. And this is from Matthew chapter 22 when they try to set a trap for Jesus uh, to catch him in really an impossible question. It's a catch-22 question, and they think if they've got him on this question, they're going to expose him as a fraud, Uh, and so this is what they do. They, They kind of conspire, and here you've got Pharisees, but you've also got Herodians, two groups that didn't like each other. The Herodians were loyal to Rome. The Pharisees were the sort of guardians of the Jewish religion. And the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of get together here to try and trap Jesus. And they lay out these plans, we're told, in Matthew 22, verse 15. And they send their disciples along with the Herodians. Go figure. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. That you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Wow, they're really speaking highly of him. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Watch this question: Is it right to pay imperial tax to Caesar or not? This is a hard question to answer because if Jesus says no, it's you. You should not pay imperial tax. Then the Herodians, who were loyal to, Her- to uh, Rome, are going to say, "Ah, you see, he's subversing the law. He's a subversive leader. He's going to cause a rebellion." And he- and here's the problem, you see, he's he he's he's anti-Rome, and so they're going to go and get him in trouble, and and there's going to be uh, a confrontation. So if he says no, he's he- the Herodians have got him. If he says yes, it's okay to pay taxes, then the Pharisees have got him, because the Pharisees are saying this is wrong. Like we're being oppressed by this regime. Number one, number two, these taxes are dealing with these coins with these graven images on them. You're not the Messiah. If you were the Messiah, you would say no, we shouldn't pay these taxes. If you were the Messiah, you would say I'm here to overthrow Rome. I'm going to organize the the greatest uh, rebellion against Rome. It's going to be even greater than the one that. took place in 165 uh, when we took back the temple. It's going to be even greater. We're not paying any taxes to Rome. Uh, So he's in a catch-22. If he says yes, they've got him. If he says no, they've got him. And so this is what happens. Jesus, we're told, knowing their evil intent, he says, you hypocrites, you're actors. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying the tax. Let me see it. So they bring him a denarius, standard coin of the time. We have found many, many of these. And he says, well, tell me something. Whose picture's on here? And whose inscription is on this coin? And, you know, they're kind of thinking, well, duh, it's Caesar's. And that would be, in that time, it would be Tiberius. And uh, so he says to them, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away <laughs> because what he's saying there is is a, is a really brilliant response. Who meant who minted this coin? Whose whose picture is on there? Like you, you really think that you're going to overthrow this whole setup? You, you really think that I'm here to lead a rebellion against Rome? Whose picture is on the coin? Who mints these coins? It's Tiberius. So it's his coins. Give to Tiberius what is to Tiberius, but don't you forget you live under another kingdom as well. Give to God what is God's. This is a fascinating response because it also shows that Jesus is not interested in what the Pharisees may want. He's not interested in what uh, the the Jewish leaders want. He's not, while he's calling himself the Messiah, he is not there to overthrow Rome. He's, He's over there to overthrow, he's there to overthrow another kingdom, but not the kingdom of Rome, more the kingdom of the heart. But he's not going to do what they want. He's not going to you know, rise up and show his power and overthrow Rome or something. He's saying, you live under this. This is the way that it is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You live in two kingdoms now here on this earth, not one. So you, you can't be living in constant rebellion all the time against this. This is the system. But remember, you live in two kingdoms and not one. Another observation, because I can see your eyebrows are raising. Jesus did not forbid opposing the government. Many people think that Jesus was the ultimate pacifist and he he would never, you know that a Christian is just supposed to take it, take it, take it no matter what the political leaders say, no matter what the government says, take it, take it, take it because you're a Christian, turn the other cheek and so on and so on. And many people believe this, but if you look at the gospels closely, you see that Jesus does not expressly forbid the opposition of government. If you look at Jesus, you look at John the Baptist and the interaction with John the Baptist and Herod Antipas, and you look at these things closely, you see that Jesus doesn't rebuke John the Baptist for getting in Herod Antipas' face. He doesn't say, why are you dealing with this politician? Why are you dealing with this politician's personal life? Why are you talking to him about this? Why are you challenging him about this woman who he took as his wife and this kind of you know, this kind of immorality? He's a Herod. I mean, why are you wasting your time? doing this, John the Baptist? No, Jesus doesn't condemn him at all. He doesn't rebuke John's actions when he knows that John is in prison and John begins to be troubled and question whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus sends people to him and you tell him who I am. You tell him the blind are seeing. You tell him. He wanted to encourage uh, John the Baptist, really a distant relative of Jesus. So he doesn't rebuke John the Baptist at all. He doesn't tell him he's wrong. And then you see, even in Jesus's dealings with Herod Antipas, in Luke chapter 13, verse 31 to 32, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So Antipas wants to kill you Jesus. Oh uh, wow, that's no stranger to, no strange uh, phenomenon to Jesus. Herod the great wanted to kill him too. So now he's told that Herod Antipas wants to kill him. Does he say, "Well, that's okay. No problem." No, what he says is, "You go tell that fox." A fox, the 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 image of a fox would be it would be a derogatory image. It would be saying he's all bark and no bite. It would be, uh, you know, you see these little little dogs in the street who bark, 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 but they're tiny little dogs. And if they bit you, there's nothing there. They're deceptive. They're trying to scare you, but they're deceptive and they're, they're all bark and no bite. You go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. I'm not afraid of him. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm going to continue on what what I'm supposed to do. And you can go and you can tell that duplicitous, deceptive fox that that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) So Jesus is not, he's not saying, oh, well, you can't say anything. You can't do anything. You can't oppose the government. No, yes, I think you can. And I think by the examples, I think you can. But... The way that you do that and when you do that is critical because Jesus also believed in uh, or he was against a type of violent rebellion. And he resisted this kind of thing. And uh, you, you see this in his ministry, especially when he had the chance to incite a rebellion. And don't forget, Judea was a province that was not Uh, you know, they were not strangers to rebellion. They tried all the time. That's why they had procurators uh, from Rome dealing with them. They were watched very, very closely for uprisings and so on. And Jesus could have mobilized a massive one. And many people think that that's what the Jewish people wanted. They wanted him to overthrow Rome because after all, he's the Messiah. Many people think that that's what Judas, uh, who betrayed Jesus, wanted. And when he betrayed Jesus and got Jesus arrested, he thought that it may have flipped the switch and that this would trigger the violent confrontation and the rebellion. And yet you see when Jesus is arrested in the garden, well, of gethsemane we're not sure if it's a temple guard or if it's a roman guard but regardless they all end up being kind of lumped into the same pool here and you see the betrayal and you see the confrontation and you see indeed there is violence and you see uh there's a uh the servant of the high priest has his ear sliced off by peter who maybe he's going for his head, some say. Maybe it was a smaller uh, type of dagger that he had in his hand, a smaller kind of hand-to-hand combat weapon. And he slices off the the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus... Heals the man, puts his ear back on. It's a, it's a really dramatic story. And what does he say? Put your sword back in its place. He had his chance right there and then, and he doesn't take it. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And watch this. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Twelve legions of angels. If you go by a Roman legion, you've got thousands upon thousands upon multiplied thousands of angels. And Jesus is saying, I could snap my little finger and give you a rebellion the likes of which you've never even believed. He has the supernatural at his beck and call. This man has raised the dead. This man has cast out demons effortlessly. This man has power over weather This this man could apparently do anything he wants, including command at will the realm of the supernatural. He doesn't do it. He doesn't take the bait. He's not going to do it. Am I leading a rebellion, he says, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Wow. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the writings of the prophets, which must be fulfilled. Amazing. So he could have done it. He doesn't do it. He resists the violent rebellion option, which many of them wanted. Why? Because the way that we apply this to our lives and the way that Jesus lived it out, you've got to, yes, you can say no. Yes, you can oppose, but choose your battles and choose your methods of battle. And this is where it comes right into our own hearts and what we're living through right now. Choose your battles and choose your methods. So some questions for you to ask here in the 21st century. Given this fallen government, yes, for sure it's a fallen government, but it is the government that's in place. Let me ask you, did the government ask you, did it tell you that you had to murder? Did it command you? Did it issue a mandate for you to murder or destroy or abuse human life? Well, in Exodus 1, they did that. In Exodus 1, the Pharaoh said to to the Hebrew midwives, the babies that come out, you're to take them and throw them in the Nile. And what did the Hebrew midwives do? They disobeyed. In effect, they disobeyed the government. Why? Because they were being told something that expressly contravenes, expressly contradicts the, 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 the ethics, the law of God. This is a real basic one. They didn't do it. Did, let me ask you, did your government mandate tell you that you had to worship other gods? Well, they did in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, they're told, you will worship this statue of this leader. And when we blow the horn, everybody bows down and everybody worships the statue. You ready? One, two, three. They blow the horn and the Hebrew boys, they stand. We're not worshiping this this statue. We're not worshiping this false god. They disobeyed the law. Have you been asked that? Were you told to stop praying? Is there a mandate that says you must stop praying to Jesus? Well, Daniel was told that in Daniel chapter 6. He couldn't kneel down and he couldn't pray to Yahweh. It became illegal for him to do that and he did it anyway. He disobeyed the law. Were you told that you could not share your faith anymore? You could not speak publicly about Jesus? Have you been told this here in this culture? There are countries where people are told that. Have you been told that here? Uh, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin told Peter and John, the religious court, government, if you will, said, we forbid you to speak in this name. And to talk about Jesus and to talk about his resurrection from the dead, we don't want to hear it. They arrested them. And what did they say? Well, we can't help it. We're going to keep talking about him. We must obey God rather than men. Have you been asked these things? Well, these are examples where people in the scriptures said, no, we're not going to. Why? Choose your battles and choose your methods. You know, there's a lot, a lot of talk, a lot of emotion about, well, the church, they closed the churches and now they've opened the churches the places of worship. Really, it's not just churches. Now they've opened them, but they've got this dreaded vaccine passport. Oh, shame on this ungodly government and all of that. Folks, in the first century, when the government, if you will, when Rome destroyed the Jewish temple, they didn't close it because of a a, temp- a temporary pandemic. They, they destroyed it in a four-year war with the Jews. They wiped out the temple. They wiped out the city. The temple has never been rebuilt. Never. Do we live under such circumstances where we're in physical war with the government, where they're, where they're uh, blowing up our churches and our places of worship? Yes, in some countries that takes place. Is that what's taking place here? And we get all upset and we get all. Choose your battles and choose. Your methods. It's terrifying. Jesus predicted that that would happen. He predicted that Jerusalem would fall. He predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And he said, It will come, not, not one stone will be lifted, it will be on another. And it's because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, i.e., me. You have rejected me, you have not recognized me. And what's going to happen is, is going to blow your mind. And 40 years after Jesus said that, the Romans came in under Titus and they sacked and burned the temple and they killed the people and they destroyed the city terrifying choose your battles and choose your methods history is going to be the judge as to whether or not all of this energy and all of this fighting and all of this anger and you know the trucker convoy and the not trucker convoy and all of these things and we oppose and people running around with confederate flags history is going to judge whether or not this was a glorious waste of everybody's time and energy I sometimes wonder if the people 100 years ago who lived through the Spanish flu that wiped out a minimum of 50 million people worldwide, no vaccine for it wipe them out either you either you caught it and died or you caught it and lived but you were going to catch it i mean 50 million people i sometimes wonder if those people could march through time those who lived and those who died through it and could and could look at us and what they would say i i wonder if they would say wow that's what you guys are fighting over we didn't even have a vaccine i mean sure they they sometimes they wouldn't put on their masks they were called um Uh, uh, they were called, um, they had a term for these people, and they wouldn't wear it, slackers. They called them mask slackers. And sometimes they would cut a hole in their mask so that they could smoke through it because they didn't like the fact that they couldn't smoke. Or they took the mask off, and they said, these masks, you know, they're they're unattractive, they're bad for business, and they called these people mask slackers. And I wonder if they would look at us and say, wow, you're fighting over a vac, we didn't even have that back then. It was a lot simpler back then, wasn't it? You guys are spending all that time and all that energy and all that money fighting against that? Pick your battles and pick your methods. History is going to decide and going to judge whether or not this was all a glorious waste of time. Let me give you some examples of people inspired by the life of Jesus who made an impact that still lives on today We still talk about them today. If you do not know the name of William Wilberforce, uh, he's someone who you should get to know. There is a fantastic depiction of his life in the 2007 uh, movie called Amazing Grace, uh, which details the story of the abolition of the transcontinental slave trade, uh, which which. I mean the people were treated like it's it's In unspeakable ways, you had people traded for weapons and spices and sugars and textiles and put through conditions that, I mean, many of them died on the open sea as they were shipped in in boats, uh, jammed into these tiny little compartments on a 3,000-mile ship ride. I mean, it was an absolutely disgusting, horrific, and legal practice. Legal. Everywhere it was legal. And William Wilberforce and the other abolitionists who rose up inspired by their Christian faith fought and fought at the very expense of their lives and their health and their families. And Wilberforce Is one of the most notable ones who labored in the British Parliament for years and years and years, had a call on his life to ministry and did not go into the ministry because he felt it was better to be in Parliament and to fight against this evil regime that was law. And the thing was, was abolished in 1807 in the British Parliament. You don't see the full results of it until a few years later. But you need to watch that movie. It is inspiring. Why did he do this? Because of his Christian faith. Folks, of course there's a time and a place. But choose your battles and choose your methods. Another figure in history who you may not know is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, who lived from uh, 1906 to 1945, very short life, because he was executed, he was hung by Hitler. And Bonhoeffer was a pastor, German pastor and a theologian, and he was a very vocal anti-Nazi dissident. And he was quite upset that the churches in Germany did not rise up and fight and stand and do something about what was going on with this propaganda and this rhetoric and this genocide that was taking place. And he said that the church needs to stand up and fight against this. And he wanted to see Hitler assassinated. He would have gladly taken part in a plot to assassinate Hitler. And he was found and he was arrested and he was ultimately hung because of this view of folks. This is a man who said... There is a battle to fight, and there is a method that is appropriate for this type of battle, and he was one who, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which will challenge you, because for him, the church and the Christian must act and must put their faith into practice, and sometimes that means opposing and opposing, even using force if necessary, given a a set of conditions. It's Black History Month. The most famous civil rights activist, the the pinnacle of the peaceful uh, protest, is, of course, Martin Luther King Jr., who was also Uh, assassinated, who was killed. He was an American pastor and he was the, the greatest and most notable civil rights activist. Folks, Jim Crow was law. That was law. That was Democrats, Republicans. It was the law. And this man said no. He stood up and opposed it. He opposed it. He was arrested numerous times and ultimately killed. So, uh, folks, there is a time, and all these people were inspired by their Christian faith to do this. Um, uh, A colleague, if you will, of his, Rosa Parks, who famously, I think in 1955 it was, said, no, I will not give up my seat in this bus to this white person. In the buses of that day, because of the, the, the Jim Crow laws and the segregation that took place, you, you had a section that was for blacks only. you had a section for whites only, and you had a section for either, depending on who got there first. And she said, "I'm not giving up my seat to this white person. I was here first. It was illegal." And she was arrested for it. There's a picture of her being printed. One of the great civil rights activists who said, No, I will oppose this. But again, choose your battles and choose your methods, the greatest question I think that Jesus has for us is not, what's your opinion here in the 21st century about this government overreach and this not government overreach? I don't think that's the question that Jesus is asking us at all. I think the question that he's asking us is, who really governs you? Who is it that is the the governor of your life? Who is the one who's on the throne of your heart right now? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it materialism? Is it an addiction? Who is on the throne of your life and who is governing you? Isaiah chapter 9, which uh, Matthew quotes In the opening uh, chapters of of Matthew, he just quotes a couple of verses of it. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Written by Isaiah 600 years plus before Jesus was born. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee. Ah, where Jesus came from. Of the nations, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Watch, and the government will be upon us. His shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. This will ultimately be fulfilled at the second coming. But the the one who Jesus wants to govern now is you. It's the individual. It's the person who will submit their heart to Jesus and say, you be the Lord of my life. You be the governor of my life. I don't want this relationship as my God anymore. I don't want this drug as my God anymore. I don't want this behavior as my God. I don't want this money as my God. I want you, Jesus, to be my Lord and my God. That is the question I think that Jesus is asking. After 2,000 years, he's still asking the same question, pandemic or no pandemic, what will your answer be? I'd like Sean and uh, Simon, if they would go and head to their instruments and, and just begin to play something. And I want to just finish by having a word of prayer with you. This is a critical, critical question, my friends. Like it doesn't matter what it, this, this temporary stuff of life, it's going to come and it's going to go. When, when you pass from this life, you're going to stand before your maker. And the question is not going to be, what was your opinion about government overreach? The question is going to be, Am I? D- do I know you? Am I the Lord and the God of your life? Did you make a decision about me? What was that decision? He will already know the answer. The question is, will you prepare for that time to come? Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for your word that speaks to us. We thank you for so much that we can learn, so much that we can, we can hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would truly give us ears to hear what you are saying to us today. And Lord, I, I pray on behalf of all of those who are watching and those who are going to watch later, those who are going to listen later, I pray, God, you would have mercy upon me, a sinner, Lord, I I repent from my sin. I turn from my ways. I I make a 180 degree turn. Lord, I've realized that all these things that I've tried to, to put inside my life and make the center of my life, maybe it's just myself. I just want to be the center of my own life. I've just realized, Lord, that they're all useless things. And I need you, Jesus, to be my God and to be my Savior. Forgive me. I submit myself to you afresh today. Amen. You prayed that prayer. I want you to reach out to me. Maybe it's the first time in your life you've ever prayed that prayer. Reach out to me. You can do that through our website at citypointchurch.ca. Um, uh, Wednesday, we've got uh, uh, Zoom with Alpha talking about the church. Thursday, we have prayer. And on Sunday, we will be back at the theater. Yes, you have to have your vaccine passport, ages 13 plus. I am so excited to see you. We're going to start a new series about the parables of Jesus. You will enjoy very, very much. God bless you today.
1: our god firm foundation our god only solid ground the nations rise and fall kingdoms strong now shaken we trust forever in your name the name of jesus Trust the name of Jesus. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only King forever. Forevermore, you are victorious.